So do you remember the story of Little Red Riding Hood? Remember that one? And just in case you don't, there was a little girl. She's wearing a little red riding hood. That's why, I don't know how that became her name, but that's what it was. And mother says, hey, take these treats to your grandma. She's sick in a nearby village. And so she does. So along the path, she meets a wolf that starts talking to her. She doesn't find that weird. So he asks, um, hey, so where are you going? And she says, I'm going to my grandmother's house. He says, I bet I could beat you there. And she says, okay, you're on. And so they race. Again, doesn't find that strange. So he gets to grandma's house, pretends to be Little Red Riding Hood. Grandma opens the door and he eats her. Okay. Then he puts on grandma's clothes, right? And he goes and goes in grandma's bed and pretends to be sick and, and says, oh, Little Red Riding Hood, you know, knocks on the door and grandmother can I come in? And and he pretends to be grandmother, tricks her too, lets her in, but she's a little suspicious, right? Oh, grandmother, what big ears you have, right? All the better to hear you with my child. Oh, grandmother, what big eyes you have. All the better to see you with my child, right? And so on and so on until we get to, oh, grandmother, what big teeth you have. All the better to eat you with, right? Jumps on her, eats her, and, and that's that. Now, the version that you and I are used to, um, at this point, uh, the, the, the wolf falls asleep and a hunter's walking by and he's hearing snoring that doesn't sound like a sweet little old grandmother. And so he looks in the window and sees a wolf in the grandmother's bed with a distended belly. And he says, I'm not going to shoot that wolf because I think grandma's inside. So while the wolf is sleeping, I'm going to cut him open and let grandma out. So while still asleep... I don't know if he has anesthesia or what, but he cuts up the, cuts the stomach open of the wolf. Grandma jumps out and so does Little Red Riding Hood and everybody's happy, they're safe. So they put some rocks inside the belly of the wolf, sew him back up so that when he, that didn't wake him up, but when he wakes up, he is, he can't move and he dies, right? So that's, that's the story. So did you know that the Brothers Grimm version, which is the one that we're used to, was based on a, a, on a previous fairy tale, and the story actually ends like this, and I quote, the wicked wolf fell upon Little Red Riding Hood and ate her. The end. Do you know that? That's a bit too dark, right? So the Brothers Grimm kind of softened it up a little bit. But the, the author of the, of the older version said that he, he said, I, I used the image of a wolf because some people are like wolves. He, he wrote this story, he said, so that the moral of the story would be that children should not talk to strangers. He said, some strangers are charming, polite, unassuming, and sweet. And he goes, these are the most dangerous of all. The people that you don't recognize are wolves but are actually wolves. Little Red Riding Hood, she saw the signs, but she's a little too naive to recognize that she was in danger and she got eaten. Question for you, who identifies people in the Bible as wolves? That's right, Sunday school answer, Jesus. He said this, Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets, false teachers, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous, which means aggressive, insatiable wolves. So Jesus pictures false teachers as wolves. Is there anybody that Jesus pictures as sheep? Us, right? Christians, we're, we're sheep. So we, we are sheep, false teachers are wolves, which means that if we put these two stories together, we are little red riding hood. And here's the thing. 
if we're naive, if we don't have the discernment that comes from knowing God's truth, then we will be spiritually eaten by false teachers. We will not suspect that they are false teachers. You know why? Because they're dressed like sheep. Who are sheep? Sheep are Christians. They will look like Christians, sound like Christians, act like Christians, and be anything but Christians. How is it that you can break through the disguise and recognize a false teacher from a true teacher? That is the issue that Paul is addressing in Titus chapter 1. So if you're not there, turn now please to Titus chapter 1. He writes this letter to his friend Titus who he left on the island of Crete around 63 AD. So actual people, actual letter to an actual place. And in Titus chapter 1 or page 1100 in those blue Bibles, this opening paragraph of chapter 1, Paul has devoted a lengthy discussion to the idea that right leadership has to be in the churches on the island of Crete. And right leadership means men with good reputations. Good reputations means loyal to their wives, able to influence their children toward faithfulness and, and, and integrity. They must be godly men with lives who, whose, whose lives no accusation can stick to. And then we saw last week in verse 9 that they must be insatiably devoted to the Bible with the ability to both persuasively teach the Bible and courageously defend the Bible. In verse 5, Paul says the churches are out of control. They need to get straightened out. They're deviating from the truth. They're deviating from godliness. And then starting in verse 10, Paul gives us the reason why. Why they're in such disarray. So with the words that we're going to see this morning, Jesus really, through the apostle Paul, demonstrates the urgent need of the hour, which is the urgent need of every hour in church history. The need is for solid, strong, Christ-like, qualified church leadership. As false teachers stalk the little red, little red Riding Hood Christians all over the world, the God-ordained and most effective strategy to fight them is to train true teachers and then to enlist them in the battle. Now take a look at verse 10. How many false teachers was Paul concerned about? Chapter 1, verse 10, for there were how many? Many false teachers question do you think that's still true today do you think there are more false teachers today or less false teachers today which means that the the need for solid strong christ-like leaders has never been more urgently needed than it is now listen it's not honorable it's not christ-like for a leader to be silent in the face of false teaching nor is it okay for him to say something like well it's just fine and people think whatever they want to think yes While a pastor, every elder, they they must have a shepherd's heart. They they must love and be tender. They must also have a soldier's edge to them. One author put it this way. The pastor ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep and the other for driving out the wolves. Why do they need that? Because nobody had a shepherd's heart and nobody had a shepherd's edge, a soldier's edge like Jesus did. You read the gospels. He is kind and tender and gentle. And he is tough and and, and searching and sharp with false teachers. And that is how every Christian leader needs to look at Christ and say, okay, that's my model. And that's what we're going to see this morning. 
Uh, this morning, I, I want us to start in verse 15. And in starting in verse 15, I want to help you, point number one, recognize the truth about false teachers. Recognize the truth about false teachers, regardless of what you think you see on the outside, regardless of what you think is true about them. What is God's evaluation of false teachers? So after describing false teachers, verses 10 to 14, which we're going to look at in a minute, Paul gives us God's evaluation of them with these words. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Let's say, let's break that down a little bit. What does that mean? Verse 15, the pure, who is that group of people? Those are Christians. They're, they are those who believe, those whose minds and consciences have not been defiled. And for them, it says, verse 15, all things are pure. This doesn't mean that they can't sin. It doesn't mean that whatever they do is pure because they're saved. That, that's, that, that's not what it means. What it means is those who, for those who are holding firm to the faithful word, verse nine, who've been purified from their sins, whose minds and consciences have been cleansed through forgiveness. What this means is their perspective on God and truth is pure. When their minds wrap around God's truth, nothing they believe is defiled. It's all pure because it's all true from God. It's pure because it's based on God's truth. But, but notice verse 15, the false teachers, they're the opposite. They're not pure. They're part of a group called, verse 15, the defiled. They're defiled because they're, quote, unbelieving. So whatever they're believing in themselves or an organization, their ministry, their obedience, their activity, whatever it is, they're not believing in Christ. They're not trusting in him to be saved. And since verse 14, in fact, they've turned away from the truth because of that, as a result of that, no, really, their, their turning away from the truth comes from the fact that at their core, they are defiled. Look at what it says. Their, quote, minds and their consciences are defiled. And that defiling creates a domino effect, which means that nothing, verse 15, nothing is pure. Meaning that when they hear God's pure truth, they reject it, they push it away, they want nothing to do with it. Because they hear it, it's like, I don't believe, I don't think that, that's not true. It's not pure to them because they're defiled, but they don't know it. So let's think of some examples of this. So for instance, they reject the biblical God. Why? Because they hear about the one true God in the Bible, they go, I don't like that. And so they create idols to, to suit them, false gods to, to make them happy, to fit their categories, to give them what they want. They're going to reject the biblical Jesus. They're going to promote another Jesus. He's, he's not the God man. He's not the savior of, the, of sinners. He's not, the, he's not the resurrected Lord. He's a created being, a martyr, an avatar, an angel, an ascended master, a Buddha, or whatever else. That fits their thinking, not the Bible. They reject the biblical gospel. They reject the good news that anybody... No matter where they've been or what they've done or what's been done to them, anybody can come to Christ and be saved. Anyone can turn to him, turn from their sins and trust in him for eternal life. Anybody. They reject that and go, no, 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 no. Can't be that easy. I, I got to have my, my religious activity. I, I've got to have this or I, I got to trust this organization, which gets me to Jesus. Or I've, I've got my resume of all my good works. That's what I've got to trust in. So all their trust is, is not in Jesus, it's in other things because they hear the biblical gospel and go, no, nah, I, I don't believe that. For them, nothing about God's truth is pure. They hear God's truth and think it's tainted, it's corrupted. Why? Because what they think is the standard for what's pure and good and right and true. In fact, they are upside down in God's right side up world 
And what is it that proves it? What is it that proves that, that they're hypocrites, that they don't really know God? It, it's not what they say. No, look at verse 16. What they're saying is this. They profess to know God. That's their announcement. I know God. But they deny him by their what? Works, by their, their lives prove, right? We say that all the time. Actions speak louder than words. So here they are. I know God. I love God. I'm a follower of God. And every time they actually start to live their lives with other people, they prove they are not followers of God. They do not know him. They do not have a relationship with him at all. This is a universal axiom idea that, that, that Paul takes and applies to these false teachers. But it's true for all people. You demonstrate whether or not you actually know God by your changed life. Your words mean nothing. So here they are. They claim to, you know, false teachers do. They claim to be, you know, the super knowledge of God, God compared to everybody else. They're the super Christians. They, you know, but, the, but their behavior, it's not their words. Oh, we're so, there's pomp and circumstance and all this wonderful stuff. But no, it's their lives that show you. Probably shouldn't follow them. They aren't like Jesus at all. They don't love people. They use them. Their lives are filled with conflict. They're impatient. They're law-oriented, not showing grace to people. They're un, unreliable, inconsiderate, undisciplined. That's just the fruit of the Spirit. That's the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. They're the opposite of those things. Why? Because God's Spirit's not living in them, producing the fruit that shows that he's in their lives. If we take the, the qualifications in Titus 1, they're adulterous. Their kids are wild, immoral, and out of control. They're surrounded by scandal, arrogant, greedy, angry, often have substance issues. They, they are everything that godly church leaders are not. They are, verse 16, notice, detestable. You know what that word means? It means repulsive, an abomination to God. Disobedient to God, it says that they are. And they're unfit for any good work. That means nothing they do is good. Nothing they do could possibly be acceptable to God. It is, as we saw there, infected, defiled, tainted by sin, no matter what they do. They're like counterfeit money. They seem to be genuine until this expertise, this, these truths from Titus chapter 1 are superimposed on their lives. And you go, oh, wait a minute. Your life matches the false teachers in Titus 1. I should probably limit your influence on my life. So before moving on, if it's not Titus chapter one, if it's not the book of Galatians, if it's not Matthew 23, if it's not Matthew chapter seven, what, what standard do you use for recognizing the difference between a true teacher and a false teacher? So I'm not, I'm not sure what the standard is Christians are using today because false teachers are having a field day in the churches of America and around the world. In the words of Jeremiah 5.30, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. It's appalling, it's horrible, it's so, it's so bad, it's shockingly bad. But what could that be? Jeremiah continues, the prophets prophesy falsely. So the teachers are teaching error as if it were true. And the priests rule in their own direction. They, they do whatever they want. The pastors, they do whatever they want rather than what God wants them to do. But that's not what's appalling and horrible. What's appalling and horrible is this. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule in their own authority. And here it is. And my people love it that way. They don't see anything wrong with it. They love false teachers. 
They love false teaching. They love pastors who use the Bible as advice rather than the source for what they're to say and do. Friends, look around at the state of Christianity today. It is the way it is because false teachers have a massive influence. Thanks to marketing, revenue sales, other sources. While except for a few exceptions, true teachers are ignored. They are obscured. And it is almost impossible to find one. You better be able to spot false teachers. Why? Because verse 10 says there are how many of them? Many of them. They're stalking God's pasture. They, they are dressed up like sheep, but they are wolves. And they are looking and they are watching to devour. Spotting them is where Paul takes Titus in verse 10. So take a look at verse 10. Let's, yeah, let, let's read that. Verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate. So why is it that you need these godly teachers? Why is it you need these, these godly church leaders? Verse 10, because there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. The discernment that you and I need to spot false teachers comes from being able, point number two, to assess the behavior of false teachers. Assess the behavior of false teachers. As we saw in verse 16, it is the behavior of false teachers that exposes them for the frauds that they are. You need to know what behavior outs them as counterfeits. Notice verse 10. Let's walk through it. Their behavior. Notice verse 10. First, they are insubordinate. That means, you know, they think God's rules have an exception and they are it. His rules don't apply to them. They, they disregard his rules, even flagrantly. They're unwilling to live under God's authority or they obey selectively. It's the, the sizzler salad bar approach to, to obedience. They're like, oh, the Bible, like, yeah, I'll get, you know, give me the, the, the strawberries of grace and love and get rid of those olives of self-denial. Like, get that stuff out of here. Like, I don't want to do that. Like, that, that's, their, that's, that's what they do. They pick and choose the parts of the Bible that they want to obey. Notice verse 10, they're also empty talkers. They talk a lot, but they're not saying anything. They're not saying anything of value, of any spiritual eternal value. They, they may sound impressive and look impressive and, and have all this bling and, and have all these people following them. But when you, when you really get to the core, they're not saying anything that promotes salvation or growth as a Christian. It's all useless nonsense. Verse 10, that's because they are deceivers. Listen, they disguise themselves as Christians. We saw that, wolves in sheep's clothing. They disguise their teachings as biblical. They disguise their lives as godly. Their entire life is, is hypocrisy. Can you imagine the anger that God has towards people who are saying, I speak for God, I speak for God to God's people when they aren't? I mean, it's one thing to promote a false God. I mean, that's bad enough. To pr but to promote the true God with lies and hypocrisy? Oh, that, that, that's far worse. And look back at verse 10. The false teachers that caused all these problems in the churches on Crete were from verse 10, the circumcision party. 
I don't know about you, but that's got to be the worst party in the history of the world. Right? Like, don't invite me to that party. Like, lose my invitation to that one. Right? No, these, these are likely a group of people who once identified as Christians. But verse 14, notice that they turned away from the truth. They turned away from it and actually started competing against it. And we don't know exactly what it is that they said, but whatever it is, it did not agree with verse nine, the message, the, the, the apostles, including Paul, it, it didn't agree with what they taught. They gave themselves over to what call, Paul calls in verse 14, Jewish myths. These are speculative, legendary tales uh, that sound biblical and sound very, um, very important and, and very esoteric, but they're typically found in the white spaces between words. You know, rather than the actual words in the Old Testament, that's that's these myths and legends. Rather, the truth that they've become obsessed with, verse 14, is a commandments, verse 14, that come from the minds of people rather than from the mind of God. Jesus in Mark 7, he says that the Jews were experts in substituting God's word with, with, with the teachings of human beings. And these people did the same thing. Teachings that don't match the Bible are, are inventions of human beings or something worse. And I want you to see this. So turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Just two books to the left. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is um, dealing with the same issue of false teachers with his friend Timothy as he was doing with his friend Titus. Timothy is in, in the modern country of Turkey in the city of Ephesus. And he says, hey, you're going to have false teachers too, but uh, false teaching too. But notice how he describes it. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. And they're going to depart from the faith by devoting themselves. Same ideas as Titus 1.14. They're all in, they're obsessed with, they're devoting themselves. Notice, to deceitful spirits and teachings of what? Do you know that demons teach things? Did you know that? So either the teachings that false teachers are promoting either came from their own hearts or came from demons. But either one, the the goal of, of error is to muddy the water, to sow confusion, to obscure and hide the truth so that people think they're on their way to heaven when they're really on their way to being damned. And the result of all this, turn back to Titus chapter one. What is the result of all this? Spreading all over the island of Crete? The result is this, verse 11, they were upsetting whole families. It was so interesting to talk to people as they were leaving today and going, I know exactly what it's like to have a false teacher turn my family upside down. That's that's what was happening here. They were overturning them. It's the same word used for what Jesus did to the tables of the money changers in the temple, turning, flipping them over. That's what was happening to families who were in these churches. Now, churches met in homes at this time. And instead of having a single teacher in these churches, the teachers would would roam around to all the churches and they would would teach all over the place and go to another village and teach there too. So So what would happen is these guys would show up, enter a house, verse 11, they would teach what they ought not to teach and just leave a crater of man-made lies in the lives of these Christians. Families were being destroyed. Churches were in upheaval all over this island. And you got to ask, like, why are you doing this, false teachers? What, what, is, what is it that you're looking for? Verse 11 tells us. They did it all. Why? For shameful gain. Shameful gain. We read that and we automatically think money. But the word gain is used by Paul when he says to die is what? 
is gain. To die is gain. So, so the word means blessing, advantage of, of really any blessing or advantage. So Titus 1.11, I mean, that, that could include money, but it probably also includes things like fame and admiration and, and influence and followers. This is what drove them, expanding their platform. This is what caused them to turn from the truth, turn to myths and spread those myths all over the island. And guess what? It is the same reason false teachers do what they do today. So as you you walk through that and hear that, are are you beginning to get some tools, beginning to get some ideas? Like if I see these things in a particular person that I'm allowing to influence my life, I should probably limit that influence, if not run as fast away as I can, right? So to to support what he's saying about these false teachers, Paul quotes verse 12, calls this guy a prophet. He's not a real prophet, a true prophet. He's someone that Cretans considered a prophet. He's a celebrity. He was thought to be one of the, the wisest men alive in the, at the time. And he says, verse 12, Titus 1, 12, he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, I have a little nerd moment right now. That statement is found in the name of, of a, a writer, a poet, whose name is, was Epimenides. He lived around 500 BC, about 600 years before this letter was written to Titus. He was a Cretan. He grew up there. He would have been alive the same time around the uh, prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, around that same time. He, he, because he was from Crete, he knew these people well. And so he, he identifies these. So what Paul does is he takes this statement about Crete and he says the false teachers are the epitome of, of a Cretan. Notice the text. They are, they're liars. They're liars. They, they're not telling the truth. We already saw it in verse 10, right? They're deceivers. Cretans were so known for lying that the Greek word for lying, ancient Greek, was to Cretanize. It was Credo. So I was like, there it is. They're liars. That's, they were so known for lying that the verb for lying was named after Crete. Second, they're evil beasts. They're rude, wild people dominated by evil. Their God was their fleshly appetites. Epimenides, when describing the the people on the island of Crete, said that what Crete lacked in wild animals, it made up for in its human population. So bad it was there. And third, they're lazy gluttons. They ate a lot and worked a little. They, they, They hated to work and they loved to eat, as one author said. So these words from 500 years before Paul wrote these, this letter to Titus, notice verse 13, these, this description of the false teachers is true. It is the accurate portrayal of these false teachers. It is the truth about them. It is God's evaluation of them. And just think about this for a second. To a wicked culture, a, a culture that is so known for lying that the verb to lie is, it, it comes from the word crete, you know, that's so known for being wild and, and, and debauched that, 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 that they're compared to wild animals, to a culture so wicked that is one of the first places that heard the gospel. Did you know that? That people from the island of Crete were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, when the church was born. They were there and they heard the truth and they were saved and then they went back to the island and planted probably a lot of the churches that Paul's describing here. In fact, it didn't happen in America. Paul came to this island, preached all over the place. That's grace. Titus was left there. That's grace. There's a massive amount of grace to this incredibly wicked group of people because that's the kind of God that we have. Now, why did we go through every single little phrase and even word in such detail? 
is because this was Paul's God-inspired evaluation of false teachers. It was meant to help Titus and the other church leaders as they go out and go, hey, are you a false teacher? Are you not? Here's the list. Here's the criteria. Are you one of those? Which means that it's in the Bible so that you and I can do the same thing. Men and women who behave like some or like all of this, you cannot possibly justify letting them influence your life. And yet we do, right? I mean, I, I, I haven't only been describing false religious leaders, right? You do realize that I've been describing most of the cultural architects of our country, right? Most of the entertainers, professors, TV personalities, social media influencers. I mean, verse 12 is the entire entertainment industry in six words. Always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, right? And if you're like, oh, that's a little too harsh. Look at verse 10. Do they submit to God and his word? Is that a normal thing for the influencers in our culture? No, verse 10, they are what? Insubordinate. Do they talk about anything that's truly eternal and substantial? No, verse 10, they're empty talkers. They're deceivers. They oppose the truth. They speak against the truth. They try to convince you that everything about the truth is false and everything they're saying is true. Their lies, their views about God and our culture, sexuality, gender, right and wrong, their entire worldview, verse 11, upsets whole families. These are man-made myths that they've devoted their lives to promoting. And why are they doing it? Verse 11, money, influence, followers, admiration, fame. Listen, people who seek to, who claim to speak for God and speak the truth aren't always in church services. They're, they're not, they don't always have an open Bible, right? Sometimes they're uh, on a screen, Sometimes they're singing a song. Other times they're in state or federal capitals. Other times they're behind a podium in a university classroom. And yet they tell us, the children of God who have the truth of God's word, what we should think and how we should live and how we should understand what's true, good, and beautiful and punish us culturally for not agreeing with them. Seriously? Please, we should not embrace them. We should rebel against what they're trying to do to us. Number one. And number two, we should, do, we should definitely interact with them. We should definitely, there should be some interaction there. But notice verse 13, our interaction with them should be to help them, notice, to be sound in the faith. To help them embrace healthy, healthy truth that will make them healthy. It'll, it's to help them, verse 14, turn to the truth and be saved. How church leaders do that, how true teachers should interact with false teachers is actually why Paul wrote the words we're looking at this morning. He wrote them so that we would, point number three, summon our courage and confront false teachers. Summon your courage and confront false teachers. What we are going to read under point three is simply an application of the criteria for every church leader that we looked at last week. That verse nine, it holds fast to the trustworthy word is taught so that you may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Listen, we urgently need strong Christ-like church leaders because there are many false teachers, verse 10, and those false teachers urgently need to be, verse 11, silenced. Don't skip over that word in verse 11. Must. This is a divine command. 
It's a divine command not to ignore them, not to be nice to them, but to muzzle them and to keep muzzling them. This demand was placed squarely on the shoulders of Titus, the church leaders in Crete, and on every pastor today, every single one of them. As the flow of poison comes from the false teachers and goes into the bloodstream of the church, it is the goal of the pastors to put an end to that. They, the false teachers are blaspheming God, rejecting the truth, uh, spreading lies, upsetting churches, pulling disciples away from Jesus and being devoted to them. Their teaching, verse 11, was a problem. So how are they to be silenced? By overpowering their lies with the truth so that they would hear the truth in contrast to their lies and go, there is, there is no black and white here. Either I'm a false teacher or the Bible is false. That is bringing them to that realization. Why would a pastor do that? Because verse 11, it protects families. It protects churches. It protects the people that God has entrusted to their care. And we urgently need strong Christ-like church leaders who are not going to ignore, be nice to false teachers, but verse 13, rebuke them. How? Sharply. That's a bit rough, man. I'll just rebuke them. Why do you have to add the word sharply? Because the harshness of the response is in proportion to the heresy being spread. To rebuke them. It's to demonstrate that someone is in sin or in error. It's to expose their error from God's word and to call them to repent. This was not to be done pleasantly or peacefully. They were to do this, as you just said, sharply, which means severely, rigorously, relentlessly. Yesterday, we have this massive tree in our backyard that's got all these pomegranates on it, and it's causing the tree to fall over. So I went over there and sharply cut into one of the branches. That's the idea here. Relentlessly chopping and cutting until that branch was gone. That's the idea here. Chopping, cutting until the false teacher is gone. The command doesn't have an expiration date. It is active whenever and wherever false teachers rear their ugly heads, the, the, uh, the, the pastors are to take them out. Amen. Notice the target of church leaders. Notice the target they're to aim for, verse 13. It's not their destruction. It is addressing them so that, what? They're restored. Notice that they may be sound in the faith that they will be spiritually healthy, that they will embrace the truth, they'll make, that, that they'll teach what is true and help other people be healthy. They'll be done with that false teaching. The goal of, of rebuking them sharply, it says there, is their restoration, coming back to the truth. That's what that sharp rebuke is for, to jar them and to shake them and go, no, you're on the path to hell and you need to come back to the truth. Who knows, maybe they'd turn, return to biblical truth. That, that was where they started, but what that means is that there is, that there is not a, a, a conflict between sharp rebuke and love. It's just the opposite of that. It's just the opposite of that. That the goal, the, uh, Costi, he, he always says, he says this, he goes, let me see if I can get this. He goes, soft teaching makes hard hearts. Hard teaching makes soft hearts. And that's what's being said here. That's what's being said. Rebuke them sharply. Why? So that they turn. So that they would be sound in the faith. This is the work of a pastor. This is the work of an elder. 
in the face of many false teachers that can harm the people who've been entrusted to their care. They must protect the flock by exposing false teaching. They're exposing error that's being spread all over the place. They're to expose it, call out the false teachers in their lives. This keeps God's people healthy. It keeps churches and families from being destroyed. And here's the thing. That means weak, tentative overqualification. That means assuming the best about false teachers. That means ignoring them, trying to be nice to them is sin. It's a dereliction of duty. It, gives the, it allows the weeds of false teaching to grow in the garden of God's people. Our personalities, our comforts, what we like to do does not matter. We are commanded to do this and keep on doing it until the threat is gone. Think about it, how shameful it is to be silent or careless, to act like this is peacetime when Satan's pastors are many and they are constantly attacking the truth. How shameful it would be if you were to see your buddy's wife getting beat up and do nothing. And yet the church is the bride of Christ and Jesus raises up true pastors and says, go after the false ones out of love for the truth to protect the people and for the glory of his name. The church needs warriors, not wimps. A pastor and elder is never off duty. He is to be always ready, always watchful, always on guard for false teachers. This is, part, this is what it means to be a spiritual leader. I think spiritual leader, oh, you know, praying all the time. Oh, you know, he's, he's so nice and all that. All that's true. I'm not discounting any of that. This includes spiritual leadership. The urgent, pressing need for pastors and elders to have courage and openly and fearlessly oppose error and false teaching. Now, probably most all of you sitting here are like, I'm not going to be a pastor. Why do I need this? You know, four reasons why you need this. Number one, you need it because you need to understand that you are in danger. You are not pictured by Jesus as a rhinoceros, a bull. Like you are a sheep. Nice, sweet, cuddly, and in danger. And you just need to know that. You need to embrace that idea, which means, gosh, I, I need to learn. I need, to, I, need, I need more discernment. Second, you need to know what pastors are supposed to be doing about false teaching. You need to know what a healthy, faithful pastor in church looks like. You, you, you just need to see the scriptures and be able to say, okay, that's happening. Third, you know people who are in danger. You know people who are, who, are, who are chained to false doctrine. They need the discernment from God's word that you now have from Titus chapter one. You, you, so, so you know those people. So you've, you've got to take this truth and you've got to give it to them. And fourth, there are people walking around our neighborhoods riding bicycles, sitting outside of our grocery stores and outside of our sports complexes, all, who've given all of their lives or a significant portion of their lives to promoting false teaching. What would happen if it wasn't just pastors, but it was all of God's people, all of us here today? What, what would it be if, if all of us decided, you know what? I'm going to summon some courage. I'm going to pray for some courage. And I'm going to, I'm going to confront them sharply and in love. 
What would happen if we stopped ignoring them and started caring about them, being sound in the faith, verse 13, if we started engaging them with the truth? I mean, we know what would happen, right? Things would get a little awkward, right? Things would get a little heated. But when you put yourself out there and you say, God, I want to be obedient to what your your word says, you know what happens? God might use you to actually save one of them. I remember being a high school teacher here and uh, a few years ago and I'm talking to my students, we're getting to the section on, on world religions and I remember um, we're, we're talking and we're talking about the people that, that are going around the neighborhoods and the kids would say, yeah, you know when that happened, when, you know, when, we, when we see them, my parents turn off the lights, shut the windows and pretend we're not home. <laughs> you know, and I did, you know, all the kids in the class did what you just did. Oh, I laughed at it. And I said, so... So when, so when Jesus talked about his people being a light, he said it was a great idea to put a basket over it, right? Right, he said that, that's what you do, right? You put a basket over it and you don't let anybody know that you actually have the truth that can save them, especially those people who don't have it. Like you hide that, right? I don't think that's what he said. No. You remove the basket. You say, come here, because I've got the truth. I've got the truth. Imagine what would happen. Can I tell you what would happen? Think about this. That God could use you to rescue someone from that. God could use you to rescue a person who that would end the cycle of false teaching for multiple generations. I remember this Jehovah's Witness came to my house and he wanted to talk to me and I, I couldn't talk that day. And I, but I, I looked at him and I, I don't know. And then I saw his little three-year-old son next to him in his little tie. And I went... I'm, I'm coming after you, buddy. Absolutely. I'm going to do it for that kid. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out. I spent two and a half hours with that guy because I'm going, no, no. What, God, what would happen if you just used me to plant some seeds so that you could, you could grow them into to eternal life in their lives? Imagine the freedom that they will experience when they know the truth. They're not on the hamster wheel of trying to earn their own salvation, but they trust in the Jesus who did it all for them all because you recognize the truth about false teachers, that they're lost. All because you assess their behavior. Their lives are full of hypocrisy because lies cannot transform lives. And you summoned the courage by God's grace and by God's power to confront them with the truth. Let's be those people. Let's be that church. Let's pray.